casting. Um, well, I'll just say that again. Iris is the goddess of the rainbow, and when Antony at the beginning um, says, let the, ra- let the ranged arch of the empire fall, kingdoms are clay, here is my space, when the nobleness of life is to do thus, kissing Cleopatra, he's contrasting the stone arch of the empire, um, the arch of Titus, the arch of triumph, which the um, French Arc de Triomphe and the Washington Square Arch are imitations of, um, the arch that will last forever and be an eternal monument of the triumph of Rome to um, an utterly different kind of arch, which is that of the rainbow, the arch of Eros and Iris. So Eros is the god of love. Iris is the goddess of the rainbow. Um, The people who attend you in Egypt, in Alexandria, um, the attendants in Alexandria are love and the rainbow. And they are the contrast with um, the stone arch of the eternal city of Rome, the kingdom that will last forever, or nearly forever, that will seem as though it lasts forever. Um, from the perspective of, of Anson Cleopatra, from the perspective of Octavian, who becomes Augustus Caesar. So what we were looking at um, at the start of the play, and um, we'll continue um, with the start of the play, was first of all, Antony's saying to Cleopatra, this is what we ended with, there's not a minute of our lives should stretch without some pleasure now. And what he's doing at that moment is his version of um, the idea that a man's life is no more than to say one. Um, The nobleness of life is to do thus, and there's not a minute of our life should stretch without some pleasure now. Um, The idea being that you don't discount the present um, because of the importance of the future, All that there is, is the present moment. For Macbeth, that was a terrible discovery. For Antony and for Cleopatra, that's a momentously liberating discovery. All that matters is what matters now. Um, Cleopatra goes on, we're continuing with with Act 1, Scene 1, saying, here are the ambassadors. Listen to them. There's this important news coming to you from Rome. All of this is, again, a typical skilled playwright setup for um, telling the audience the issue of a play. We saw it in Hamlet. Um, We saw it in King Lear. You have people talking about what the issues of great moment that are about to be decided are. Um, And then you have someone come in and set the ball rolling, saying, you know, terrible news, Norway is attacking, or Fortinbras is attacking your kingdom. Um, And so the audience says, ah, this will be a play about the war between Denmark and Norway. Or Lear is dividing his kingdom among his three daughters, and no doubt they will descend into war because of their own curiosity as to whether they've been treated fairly. Um, or um, Mowbray and Bolingbroke are accusing each other of treachery, and this, this question is going to be decided by a trial by combat. Shakespeare loves to set up scenes where it looks like what the story is going to be about is being told to you. And then, more radically in Antony and Cleopatra than in any other play that we've seen, but then he pulls the rug out from under you. So what you get is someone breathless with news, really important news. Antony's got to hear it. Antony, no, I don't want to hear it. Cleopatra, yes, you must hear it. It's really important. The audience, wonder what the news is. Antony, no, I'm not going to hear it. And he doesn't. What he says is, no messenger but thine. Fie wrangling queen, whom everything becomes to chide, to laugh, to weep how every passion fully strives to make itself in thee fair and admired, no messenger but thine, and all alone tonight will wander through the streets and note the qualities of people. Come, my queen, last night you did desire it. So she's still teasing him, still saying, no, I'm not going to come with you. 
But he said, but you wanted to. And then they go off, and Antony says to the messengers, speak not to us. So urgent message, we never find out what it is. Um, we will find out um, that another urgent message comes in, which Antony does listen to um, in the next scene. But whatever it is that seems so urgent at the opening of Antony and Cleopatra, Antony completely refuses to the surprise, to the disgust of Demetrius and Philo, who can't believe that Antony would ignore Caesar the way he does. Is Caesar with Antonius prized so slight? And Philo replies, sir, sometimes when he is not Antony, he comes too short of that great property which still should go with Antony. Now, those lines are worth considering because what would it mean for Antony not to be Antony? Um, that's a question that is going to haunt Antony throughout this play. Is Antony Antony or not? Um, towards the end, to take one of a myriad of examples of this, he will say when no one is paying attention to him, he will say, I am Antony yet. I am still Antony. But he will also say, and this goes back to the rainbow imagery, he will say to Eros, look at the clouds. Sometimes we see a cloud that's dragonish. Um, all of these clouds are so beautiful, and yet they are black vespers pageants, and then they disappear. They become dislimbed, is the word that he uses, L-I-M-N-E-D. That is, they lose the lines that, um, sketches, that sketch them out, and then they become indistinct as water is in water. And then he says, that's what's happening to me. Here I am Antony, yet, yet cannot hold this visible shape, my knave, he says to Eros. I am losing my definition. So the question of Antony's definition, Cleopatra's definition is a related question, but it gets answered, or the way you define Cleopatra is fairly different from the way you define Antony. Complementary, which is what's important, but different. But start with the easier case of Antony's definition. What Philo says is that being Antony is in some way a property of things. Um, we talked about this. This is a subtle but important point. And we talked, and it's a point that we talked about when we were talking about Richard II. We talked about two kinds of kingship, or two ideas of what the king is in Richard II. The word king can refer to the particular person who happens to be king right now. That is Richard. Um, Bolingbroke, you will recall, is surprised that Flint Castle is royally manned, that is, that a royal army is defending it and that the royal standard is showing. And he says, why is it royally manned? It contains no king. And Northumberland replies, it doth contain a king. King Richard is there. But the point is it contains a king, not the king, but a king, a person who happens right now to be king. And then the other idea of kingship is there's always a king, and to be a king is like being the Duke of Gloucester or the Duke of York. The Duke is dead and living too for now. His son is Duke. That is, it's an office. And there is never any moment when there is not a king of England. Um, right now, Queen Elizabeth is actually um, the person who is the king, capital K, king of England. There is never any moment when there is not a king because the king, being king, is something that individual human beings take on that role take on that property, but the property is separate from 
the person who inhabits it. This is not a hard idea when it comes, it's not an easy idea, but it's not a hard idea when it comes to kingship or being Duke of York or being Duke of Gloucester or being president of the United States. There's always a president of the United States. Um, it may be that um, George W. Bush is no longer president, but the moment that he ceases being president is the moment that Obama becomes president. Um, it may be that Kennedy was assassinated, but the moment that he was assassinated, Johnson became president um, even before he took the oath of office. He was required to take the oath. You remember that he did take the oath um, on Air Force One, but he was already president before that. He was the one who ordered Air Force One into the air and said, that's where I'll take the oath. Um, the continuity of the office is legal and seamless and eternal. The continuity of the person, that's just the personal. Again, um, we talked about how Shakespeare is so interested in the interplay between the official, and remember the word official comes from office, the word of the official world and the personal world. And the stress placed on persons by the, off, by the offices that they become identified with, and the stress placed on politics by the personality of those who enter into those offices. But the idea ultimately would seem to be that the office is eternal, the person is not, and therefore the personal experience is always going to be defeated by history, where history means the story of the capital K king or the capital P pope or the capital P president or the capital B prime minister, lots of P's here. Um, and um, the, exper the personal experience the tragedy is about is what it's like to experience history. But what Shakespeare is doing in Antony and Cleopatra, which is very much a play about the triumph of history and the triumph of the longest lived empire that the West has ever known, um, is he is setting the tone somewhat differently first off in that line of the unfriendly Romans who are watching Antony, Sir, sometimes when he is not Antony, he comes too short of that great property which still should go with Antony. That is, sometimes he fails to be not the triple pillar of the world, not one of the triumvirates, sometimes he fails to be Antony. As though being Antony is for him what being king is for Richard or for Bolingbroke. As though actually being Antony is inhabiting a property which in some way is separate from him and yet also is him. Yes? Okay, good question, long-ish um, answer. One is that, um, that Augustus is, or Octavian is not Caesar's son. Um, no, who the hell is he? Um, he is, um, I believe he's a first cousin once removed, which is sort of nephew-like. No, he's not, a, he's not a direct nephew. Um, there's removal there. He's not, he's not, it's not his sister's or his brother's son. Um, he's, he might be... Uh, he, I believe, I looked it up once, it's more, it's, 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 it's a farther relationship than that. Um, he's often called his nephew, but, um, but he's not what we would mean by nephew. He's not technically a nephew. Um, 
However, the way Rome had, um, and only Rome, had a very odd um, human relationship, um, which was very, very prevalent there, called adoption. And um, in order to make Octavian his heir, Caesar adopted him. Um, so he's his adopted son. And that's why Caesar does call Caesarian, he says of Caesarian, who is Cleopatra's son by Julius Caesar, um, he says, whom they call my father's son. And by my father there, he means Julius Caesar. However, adoption was a political move. It's not that you just like this little kid so much that you said, oh, you're so wonderful, I'm going to adopt you as my child. Um, adoption was a very frequent and very common political move. And it had something of the um, same um, uh, effect and something of the same intention as marriages of convenience between the scions of royal houses do now. That is that um, Mary, Elizabeth's sister, was married um, to the heir to the Spanish throne um, in order to bring England and um, Spain together in the same way also um, Antony will marry Octavia in order to try to cement the bond between um, Antony and, and Octavian, her brother. Um, but those, those are um, marriages which um, uh, Antony himself says are marriages made for peace, not marriages made um, out of love or um, friendship. Um, and the same is true of adoption. So the fact that Caesar adopted Octavian um, was Caesar's attempt to consolidate power and also to determine um, the, the um, inheritance of the leadership of the first consulship in Rome. Um, it, but it was a political move um, partly because, yeah, Caesar really liked him. Um, but, but he didn't say, oh, I'm, you know, you've got to be my son. It wasn't a personal move, um, is the important thing to see here. It's a political move. Adoption is something that is, there's no real equivalent to it um, in any other Western political culture. Um, it was something that only the Romans did, but they did it all the time. Had Richard been able to do it to Bolingbroke, had he been able to adopt him, um, then the other plays that follow Richard II that we haven't done in this class, Henry IV Part I, Henry IV Part II, Henry V, the three parts of Henry VI, and Richard III that tell the history following Richard II um, would never have been written because there would have been no cause for um, no other pretender to the English throne. Um, however, Richard cannot adopt Bolingbroke. He, he, tries to designate him as his heir, but because there's no procedure for adoption in English history, he can't do it. Um, so that's probably TMI, but you asked, I answered. Um, but the, yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Where does Caesar look like Antony? No, they say that. Where? Okay. You're probably right, but um, but you need to remind me. Um, all right. Antony, however, here is being regarded, even by someone who doesn't like him. Antony is being regarded as not um, the name of a human being, but a property that almost no human could possibly live up to. Um, this mode of praise is one that you will see later um, when Antony and Lepidus and Pompey and Caesar are talking. And um, you know, Barbara says, wouldst thou praise Caesar? Say Caesar, go no further. That is the, the greatest praise you could give to Caesar is to say, well, he's Caesar. Um, any other adjective would not be as great as naming the person himself. Um, and so that idea 
I, I'm, I'm stressing this because, because it's important to see that in ending Cleopatra, Shakespeare is doing something that he really hasn't done before, which is he's collapsing the personal and the political. Um, the distinction between them, which has been the energy and which is, which is the tension between them, which has given rise to plot in Antony Cleopatra is being collapsed. And being Caesar is what Caesar is. Richard is king, but Caesar is Caesar. Bolingbroke is king, but Antony is Antony. And so the tension that had been a public versus private tension in earlier plays, Macbeth, of course, is Thane of Glamis by his father's death, as he himself says. And then Thane of Cawder by Duncan's command. And then King of Scotland by the murder that he undertakes. All of those are Macbeth. Macbeth becomes serially one, two, and three of those things. Um, but Antony is Antony because he's Antony. And Caesar, there the question is slightly trickier, but Caesar is Caesar <coughs> because he's Caesar. And so that tension between the public and the private, which has been of so much interest to Shakespeare before, the reason, I, I, I mean, I, I really think it's, it's worthwhile to see what's different in Antony and Cleopatra to do a little bit of this um, retrospective um, summarizing of what we've seen before and to show how Shakespeare is thinking about the same issues in um, vastly different contexts um, because they're so powerful. So the reason Lady Macbeth can't kill Duncan and leaves it to Macbeth to do is because he looks like her father. So she sees the sleeping king and doesn't think, ah, the king whom I must murder she thinks, oh, my father. That is the personal trumps the political Machiavellian plan that she has at that moment. Notice that Hamlet, that, that somewhere in Shakespeare's mind, this is entangled with a similar moment in Hamlet where, as I've said before, in Act 5 of Hamlet, Hamlet does not refer to his father. He refers to Hamlet Sr., the dead Hamlet, as my king. That is the um, trajectory, the vector of Lady Macbeth. The king turns into someone who reminds her of her father. The public figure becomes for her someone private, therefore someone haunting, therefore someone whom she cannot overcome. Um, and that suggests the way she's going to be haunted finally into madness at the end of the play. Hamlet is vectored, Hamlet the character is vectored the other way. He's haunted by a ghost who is driving him mad. But at the end, he is able to see that figure only as king and depersonalize his relationship to that figure. So notice how, how much Shakespeare is thinking of those relationships and the vectors, the directions that those relationships develop from the public to the private or from the private to the public. Antony, when he is trying to get out of the trap that he has set himself and trying to escape from the situation that he's in, sends Caesar a, mess a message saying that he would like to live a private man in Rome. Antony attempts privacy as his last um, hope in his negotiations with Caesar. He attempts, but he fails, and privacy is not an issue in this play. Antony and Cleopatra are never alone in this play. They are never alone together in this play. This is the, the greatest love story Shakespeare ever wrote, um, perhaps the greatest love story ever written, period. And in it, the two lovers are not alone together. They are always attended. There is no privacy in this play. Um, it's not a play about privacy. And 
it's, that's not thematically intentional. That is, Shakespeare didn't want to write a play in which he says, um, look, with Facebook and Twitter and um, location on your phone, there's just no privacy anymore. And that's what Antony and Cleopatra are experiencing. Um, what he's trying to do is to get rid of the very notion of privacy in this play because it detracts from the grandeur of the story that he wants to tell. Antony and Cleopatra are always presented as great, as peerless, as Antony himself puts it. I bind the world on pain of punishment to wheat. We stand up peerless. I, so what he's essentially saying is there is no one like us, and I require that the world know it on pain of punishment. A very odd thing for him to say. That's earlier in Act 1, Scene 1. Because how can you require someone to know something? You can, you can require someone to acknowledge it. That is, on your knees and kiss my ring and acknowledge my power over you. But you can't make someone know something. You can't make knowledge a requirement that you can hope that just by ordering it, someone will know something. But that's how Antony speaks. It's a version of the third person imperative that we looked at on Friday. Let Rome in Tiber melt. As though Antony's imperious power, his greatness is such when he has the property of being Antony that he can command that Rome melt as though his saying it. Now obviously this is metaphorical at this point, but Cleopatra is going to echo this later when she says, sink Rome and their tongues rot that speak against us. And she also calls for the discandying of all her brave Egyptians, where discandying also means dissolution or melting or sinking into um, indistinction as water is in water. So Antony and Cleopatra are about grandly public figures. They are never alone because the very idea of their being alone would make them, as Gatsby puts it, just personal. That would become just a personal story. And they, so, they are so overwhelmingly transcendent of the individual that what the way Shakespeare represents this, not the way he thematizes this, I repeat for emphasis, but the way he represents it is never to have them alone. Um, when they go off to be alone, we don't see them alone. Of course they're alone. People aren't watching them having sex. It's not quite um, a Fellini movie, but, um, but they are never alone when we see them. They are always seen by others, others who are less than they are. And that's part of the point. So. Sir, says Philo, when he is not Antony, he comes too short of that great property, which still should go with Antony. And then Demetrius gives us the handicap that Antony and Cleopatra have to overcome. I am full sorry, says Demetrius, that he approves the common liar who thus speaks of him at Rome, but I will hope better deeds tomorrow rest you happy. So we're get, in that first scene, we get a framing where we have the Roman view of Antony and Cleopatra contrasted with their own view of themselves. And the standard reading of Antony and Cleopatra, which is the wrong reading of Antony and Cleopatra, is that it's a play in which Antony has to decide between Cleopatra and Caesar, has to decide, therefore, between pleasure and duty, um, has to decide between um, the life of the grasshopper and the life of the ant, and he is unable finally to stick to the right decision, which is to be a responsible ruler of the Roman Empire, but instead he gets seduced by that great strumpet Cleopatra um, to his own destruction, um, and to hers as well, but Cleopatra um, is always looking for a way out. Antony loves Cleopatra. She likes him, 
but she likes herself more. That's the standard reading, um, and it's the wrong reading. Um, but you should just know what the standard reading is. Um, the right reading, I say in full humility, um, is that the play is staging, and this part is, is clear, no one would disagree with this. The play is staging an opposition between Rome and Alexandria. And to put it that way, to say that this play is a play about the opposition between Rome and Alexandria, is to say that on some level, in some way of thinking about the play, we can talk about the two major categories of Roman efficiency and Alexandrian indolence, let's call it. So it's about efficiency versus indolence, about work versus pleasure, and so forth. Um, and that we have a very clear binary between Roman efficiency and Alexandrian indolence. And um, what the play is about is that binary opposition. But that also is not quite the right way to put it. And the reason, it's true as far as it goes, but the reason it's not quite the right way to put it is because the idea of cataloging things into binaries, the idea of describing the theme and the tension and the jeopardy of this play as a struggle between two different principles which are necessarily at odds with each other is to describe this play the way a Roman would describe it. That is, figure out the binaries, figure out the opposition, figure out um, what the, um, how to, how to um, set each side against the other side, and then you'll know what this play is about. That way of thinking about this play is the Roman way of thinking about it. The Alexandrian way of thinking is never to see things as binaries. No one in Alexandria thinks in binary terms. No one in Alexandria is going to accept that the way to understand how things are going on in the world, um, or the way to care about how things are going on in the world, is to um, measure out their quantities so that you can compare them one to another. Compare the force of Egypt with the force of Rome. Compare um, the pleasures of Egypt with the pleasures of Rome. Compare the efficiencies of Rome with the efficiencies of Egypt. All that binary comparison is a mode of bookkeeping which is what the Romans excelled in and what the Egyptians reject. And we know that rejection from the first line, nay, but this dotage of our generals o'erflows the measure. That is, overflowing the measure. Not measuring things out and comparing them, but overflowing the measure. Not being precise, but being being. Um, vastly, spend-thriftily, squanderously, it's not a word, but I'll make it one for the day, imprecise, that's what they do in Egypt. Egypt is the place of overflow and not of measure. And you can almost feel that Philo is trying to take that away from Antony when having said that his dotage overflows the measure, he now says, well, he comes short of being himself. That is, it's not that he's more than himself, which is a more accurate account of Antony, but that he's less than himself. He comes short, too short of that great property, which still should go with Antony. Um, but either way, overflowing or coming too short, either way, that's the kind of description that the Romans will use negatively about the Egyptians. But in order immediately to counteract this, we get Act 1, Scene 2, 
Enter Enobarbus. Enobarbus, by the way, in Shakespeare's source, is the most minor character. He gets a total of three sentences in the 150 pages of Plutarch's life of Antony. Um, but Shakespeare picks up on him and makes him the most important of all minor characters in Shakespeare. Um, he is to Antony, so, so this is a good way to introduce the, him, even though he's about to disappear um, from this scene. But um, we talked about um, the window characters in King Lear, in Hamlet, and in Macbeth. And we talked about how Shakespeare, how, and, and in Richard II, and how eh, in Midsummer Night's Dream also. Um, Oberon's window is Puck, for example, in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, we talked about how Shakespeare got interested in those characters, so that Horatio in Hamlet, who is the principle of reality, who is the clear-sighted person, always gives us a way to measure, engage what Hamlet is doing. The same is true for Kent in King Lear. But by the time we get to King Lear, remember, Shakespeare is even more interested than he is in Hamlet in the relationship of the main character to the window character. Hamlet loves Horatio and is the only person he trusts. And Shakespeare shows us how Hamlet comes to trust Horatio, even as we do. But in King Lear, the window characters are Kent, who's reasonably like Horatio, but then the fool and Edgar, who are extremely odd characters in their own right. So Shakespeare is doing more with windows by the time you get to King Lear. And then in Macbeth, we talked about how Macbeth does something very strange, which is he murders his window character. That is to say, Banquo as though that relationship of main to window is something that Shakespeare is getting really interested in, um, in making odd and strange. In Antony and Cleopatra, the window character will betray the main character, um, hence the quiz question, will abandon him. And that's a very radical thing to do to a window character. Loyalty is almost definitional for this sort of window, the sidekick character. And here what you get is not does the, it's not that the main character kills the window character. Um, if you've read Don DeLillo's Cosmopolis, something like that happens in that book. It's the one interesting moment in that not so good book. Um, but here it's the window character. Who's the window character be, to be doing anything? Um, but it's the window character who abandons the main character. Um, has a life of his own and um, has his own little tragedy, the tragedy of the sidekick. Um, and the tragedy comes not because, oh, it's so hard to be a sidekick, how tragic for me. It's not the T.S. Eliot, no, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord, one that will do um, to swell a progress, start a scene or two. That's Eliot in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, or J. Alfred Prufrock speaking in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. But here, you have a window character who does what he then thinks is the wrong thing and abandons Antony. And before he abandons Antony, we will talk about this again, but before he abandons him, what he says is, I will follow still the wounded chase of Antony. He who can stay loyal even under these conditions um, he is his conqueror's conqueror, and Eno Barbus goes on, and earns a place in the story. So Eno Barbus, when he is thinking most about what he most wants, what he wants is to be part of the story of Antony and Cleopatra. And when he fails to realize that that's the noblest thing you can do in life if you're not Antony or Cleopatra yourself, that the noblest of life is to be part of their story. When he momentarily forgets that, that's when he makes the wrong choice. And that's the little tragedy of Enobarbus 
in Antony and Cleopatra. But again, it's an astonishing thing for Shakespeare to pick a window character who is going to do this unheard of thing, which is to betray the person who it seems to be his only function is, is to illuminate. Um, at any rate, Eno Barbas comes in, a soothsayer, who again is one of the strangest soothsayers you'll see in literature. Um, he's going to get vexed in this very scene. And if you know Julius Caesar, you know there's a soothsayer in Julius Caesar um, who has told Caesar to beware the Ides of March. Um, and Caesar um, ultimately does not beware the Ides of March, although he gets worried about it. Um, and the result is bad news for him. So soothsayers in general, when you put a soothsayer in a play, um, soothsayers are uncanny figures who um, only idiots don't listen to. Um, idiots say, oh, who cares about that soothsayer? Um, you know, the, think of the soothsayer in The Matrix. In the Matrix. Um, soothsayers are uncanny figures who actually, again, have a craft um, role in narratives. Um, I guess just to specify what I mean by a craft role, I mean that there are certain roles um, that are there used primarily in order to clue the audience in as to who's who. And soothsayers, the role in the craft of writing narrative that soothsayers have is that they will tell an audience who's who on the basis of how various members of the audience respond to I mean, various members of the, of the um, story respond to a soothsayer. So when you have a soothsayer, someone who says, oh, why listen to that idiotic soothsayer? That person is not one of the heroes. That person is um, stupid and could well be one of the bad guys. If you have a person saying, I'm worried about the soothsayer, um, that person is one of the helpers of the hero or heroine. Um, if you have someone say, the soothsayer says, I must not do this, and yet I shall, that person is the hero. Um, the person who takes the soothsayer seriously and nevertheless has to face up to the task that the soothsayer has warned against, but who takes the warning seriously, that person is, in general, um, that's, how, that's how narratives categorize that person as one of the heroes. Um, soothsayers are used in the craft element of telling stories. Soothsayers are used to organize the kinds of characters that we're dealing with so that the audience can recognize who's who. They're very efficient. Shakespeare, again, in this radical experiment, which is in, in Cleopatra. Shakespeare, we're now, we have been from the start, but we are now, even by today's standards, entering the part of Shakespeare's career where he becomes radically experimental. Um, and these experiments are still, should feel to you, experimental. The experiment that Hamlet was, the experiment that Othello is, the experiment that Richard II or Richard III constituted, those are experiments which came out so spectacularly well that they've become standard. They're like experiments in electricity that led to the use of electricity. Hamlet and those plays, they've become the standard for narrative. The experiments that you're getting in Antony and Cleopatra and that we will see in The Winter's Tale, they are still radically experimental, even to a 21st century um, uh, mind. And you should appreciate just how astonishing an experimentalist Shakespeare was by seeing how astonishing an experimentalist we can see he is still in these plays. So enter the soothsayer, and Charmian tells us who he is. Lord Alexis, sweet Alexis, most anything Alexis, almost most absolute Alexis. Where's the soothsayer that you pray so to the queen? Oh, that I knew this husband which you say must charge his horn with garland. So if I only knew who I was going to marry um, and who I was going to betray, so that's very Alexandrian. I really, a soothsayer, good. I can find out who I'm going to marry, which is what young women always want to do um, in soothsayer scenes. I'm going to find out who I'm going to marry. Um, but not Charmian. She's, she wants to know, 
I'm going to find out who I'm going to get to cuckold when he marries me um, and who's going to be perfectly happy in that situation. Um, now, Charmian isn't going to marry, so obviously that's not a prediction that comes from this soothsayer. And the soothsayer's prediction about her will be right. Um, Alexis calls the soothsayer. The soothsayer is there, your will. And then Charmian, is this the man? Is it you, sir, that know things? And again, let the word know there um, be a little bit more a transitive, active verb than we usually think of it as being. To know things means, okay, so you, so you know what's going to happen, tell me. But here, as you'll see, the way Charmian and um, Iris talk to the soothsayer, um, they think they can get him to know what they want him to know. As though by getting him to know differently from what he does know, they can change the future. <coughs> um, that's what Antony also thinks. I bind on pain of punishment the world to wheat, that is to know. We stand up peerless. Is it you, sir, that know things? Soothsayer, very grandly, um, just what a soothsayer should be. He's from central casting. He's the central casting soothsayer. In nature's infinite book of secrecy, a little I can read. You know, cue the um, fateful music. Um, but show me your hand, says Alexis. Ina Barbas wants the banquet brought in. And Charmian says to the soothsayer, good sir, give me good fortune. So that's the active version of no. Read my palm and find a good fortune for me. The soothsayer, you don't get it but with that, his customary grandness, I make not but foresee. So he has no choice what the future will be. He simply sees, he foresees the future. Charmian completely ignores that with her little joke. Pray then, foresee me one, um, as though he can choose what he will foresee, and she's asking him to foresee a good fortune rather than a bad one. So the soothsayer um, gives her this terrible these terrible ambiguous pronouncements. You shall be yet far fairer than you are. Um, Charmian says he means in flesh. That is, um, I'm going to get fatter. Iris, no, you shall paint when you are old. Um, wrinkles forbid, says Charmian. So um, they're interpreting the soothsayer's claim that she'll be more beautiful later. And then Alexis sees that the soothsayer is not liking the fact that he's not taken seriously. And Alexis makes a little joke about that also. Vex not his prescience, be attentive. Hush, says Charmian. Soothsayer, you shall be more beloving than beloved. Um, you will love more than you're loved. Not such a good thing. Um, it's the equivalent of Lear's, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. Um, Charmian says very reasonably, I'd rather heat my liver with drinking. Um, better to be drunk all the time than to love more than you're loved back. Um, W.H. Auden is going to disagree with this. Um, if equal love there cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Um, but she says, no, I'd rather be drunk, which is Alexandrian. Solution to all problems is being drunk. Um, Nay, hear him, says Alexis. And then Sherman says, OK, good. Now, some excellent fortune. And here's what she wants. Let me be married to three kings in a forenoon, and widow them all. Let me have a child at 50, to whom Herod of Jewry may do homage. Find me to marry with Octavius Caesar, and companion me with my mistress. That is, make me um, into a queen, just as Cleopatra is. And the soothsayer then again. And of course, cue the faithful music again, because this is absolutely true. You shall outlive the lady whom you serve. Um, and that's the soothsayer's version of what Macbeth is hearing. Um, Fear no man that's born of woman. Um, you shall outlive the lady whom you serve. And then Charmian has the great answer, which the footnote a little bit ruins for you because it emphasizes something that shouldn't quite be so emphasized. Oh, excellent, she says. I love long life better than figs. Um, and the footnote will say, ooh, figs, sexy fruit. Um, but she also actually just means figs. That is, um, what she means is, well, given a choice between long life and figs, I guess I'll go for the long life, um, Alex. Long life for 300. Um, 
Alexis? No, you're not. All right. You ever watch the Trebek uh, YouTubes? They're Saturday Night Live YouTubes. They're pretty funny. Um, all right. Uh, the idea that there could be some comparison between long life and figs as um, which would you choose, long life or figs, um, the idea that there could be some comparison. This is almost a parody of the caskets scene in The Merchant of Venice. Um, but the idea is, yeah, if you are placing all your emphasis on the present moment, um, you might pick figs over long life. Because long life, well, what's that? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. There's no time that's going to be any different from now. A man's life is no more than to say one. And you may say one a lot, but that's all it is. But figs, ooh. And she decides on long life, but it's a hard choice. And that characterizes Alexandria. Um, no one in Rome would say a line like this. Everything in Rome is oriented towards the future. Everything in Alexandria is oriented towards the present. So what's being staged here is the kingdom of the present versus the kingdom of the future. Um, the kingdom of the present is there's not a minute of our lives should stretch without some pleasure now. Figs are a pleasure. Um, the kingdom of the future is marry Octavia and stay married to her for a long time in order to bind these two leaders together and to ensure that future strife will be prevented now. So what we actually have being staged in Rome versus Alexandria is not a binary in which um, the, the um, provision and carefulness turns out to be superior to um, mindlessness and excess. But what we have is a play in which the present and the future are being contrasted with each other, in which the, the um, great um, opposition in this play is the opposition between the present and the future, and it's not clear, in fact, it's clear not, um, that this is a zero-sum game. What I mean is this is a play in which both sides win. In the present, Antony and Cleopatra completely win every present in the play. And of course, Octavius wins the future. He gets the future to which he's committed to, and Antony and Cleopatra get the present to which they're committed to. Now, that's not the Roman view of what happens in this play. The Roman view is the Romans win, and Antony and Cleopatra lose. Um, but an Alexandrian view would put it differently, and it's the difference in the way they would put it, which is what the difference between Rome and Alexandria are. So, um, I love long life better than figs. Soothsayer doesn't like this joke. You have seen and proved a fairer former fortune than that which is to approach. And Sherman says, oh well, the like my children shall have no names. Um, <coughs> that is, so if I've already had better sex and um, uh, a fairer fortune in my sexual life than what's gonna happen to me, no doubt all the other children I have will be bastards. Oh well, um, pretty how many boys and wenches must I have? And finally the soothsayer can't stand it anymore. If every of your wishes had a womb and fertile every wish a million. Um, so he's basically saying, you're not listening to me. All you wanna do is have sex with anyone you can see. Every guy you look at, you wanna have sex with. And um, if you had a child by every guy you thought about having sex with, you'd have a million children. Um, and um, Charmian makes fun of him, out fool, I forgive thee for a witch. Um, Alexis says, see, you think none but your sheets are privy to your wishes. Um, that is, you think that um, the world doesn't know about it. And Charmian says, no, all right, tell Iris hers. Uh, we'll know all our fortunes. And the Enobarbus 
again, placing the present above the future, says mine and most of our fortunes tonight shall be drunk to bed. Um, again, think it's really, I will keep insisting on this, not forever, but a little while longer, that there's really something wonderful about a soothsayer being defeated, in a sense, on his own terms in a scene like this. The wrong way to stage this scene is, oh, they don't know that this is an important soothsayer and that they should be listening to him. If only they could hear the, the diegetic music of grimness that's being played on the soundtrack. Then they would know they shouldn't be making so much fun of this. Um, that's the wrong way to read the scene. The right way to read the scene is the soothsayer is totally soothsayerly. Um, he's absolutely what he's supposed to be, and they just don't care. It's not that they're clueless. It's that, of course they know that the soothsayer's a soothsayer, and they know the story of Caesar. Um, Antony himself takes the soothsayer seriously. Um, the soothsayer is someone whom both Antony and Cleopatra knows tells the truth. They just don't care. So what you're getting here is a scene in which the voice of grim authority, which to which pleasure is trivial, is being defeated by the trivial. The trivial knows more. These, these party, partying people know more about truth than the actual oracle of truth himself. They know that they don't care what truth he's predicting for the future. So Ina Barbas says, yes, what our fortune is, is drunk to bed. Um, Iris shows her palm. There's a palm for Sage's chastity, if nothing else. So if you look at my palm, you can tell that I'm a chaste woman. Um, there, that's obviously a very dirty joke, because it's not only whether he can read her palm, but what her palm looks like. Um, there's a palm for Sage's chastity, if nothing else. Um, and Charmian makes fun of him. I mean of her, e'en as the overflowing Nile presageth famine. What's the joke there? Anyone? Yeah? Okay. Does the overflowing Nile presage famine? No, quite the reverse, as Antony is going to explain to Lepidus and to Caesar. The more the Nile overflows, the more fertile the land is, the more mud is spread on the banks of the Nile, um, and the more plentiful the harvest will be. Um, so Antony, explaining this to the Romans, says, thus do they, they with certain scales and uh, measures in the temple, they take the measure of the flow of the Nile there to see whether dearth or floisson follow. That is, what he says is, to put it in terms you Romans will understand, in Egypt they measure how far the Nile overflows. And that, the play has already told us, is an oxymoron, measuring overflow. It tells us in the first line, this dotage of our generals overflows the measure. But Antony, trying to, putting on his Roman hat, putting on his Roman helmet, Antony says, yeah, they actually, they're pretty smart. They measure the overflow of the Nile to see what the harvest will be like. But the overflowing of the Nile means plenty. Overflowing the measure means um, having everything you want. It may not last, but you have it now. So Ena is the overflowing Nile presageth family, um, famine. Then the soothsayer says, your fortunes are alike, um, which is, of course, as grim a thing as you can hear. You shall outlive the lady whom you serve, but your fortunes are alike. Um, no one in the audience doesn't get how grim a moment this is, um, but so do they. But how, but how can you particulars? I have said. And then Iris asks, am I not an inch of fortune better than she? Um, 
And um, in fact, she isn't because she dies earlier. And then Charmian makes another dirty joke. Well, if you were but an inch of fortune better than I, where would you choose it? And Iris gets the joke immediately. Not in my husband's nose. Um, so she would choose the inch elsewhere. Um, elbow or big toe, no doubt. Um, Charmian, our worser thoughts, heaven's mend. I can't believe what we're thinking about. And then Alexis, come. His fortune, his fortune. And then this crucial thing, which you should put together with, I love long life better than figs. Oh, let him marry a woman that cannot go, sweet Isis, I beseech thee. Um, so let him marry a woman who's unable to have sex. Oh, let him marry a woman that cannot go, sweet Isis, I beseech thee. And let her die too, and give him a worse. And let worse follow worse, till the worst of all follow him, laughing to his grave, fiftyfold a cuckold. Good Isis. And then this is, I think, the crucial note for Alexandria. Good Isis, hear me this prayer, though thou deny me a matter of more weight. Good Isis, I beseech thee. So the prayer is, answer me this, give me this, even if I pay for it by having you not answer a prayer that matters more though thou deny me a prayer of more weight. So that's the placing present pleasure above any provision for the future. Good Isis, hear me this prayer, though thou deny me a matter of more weight. Good Isis, I beseech thee. Um, and Iris agrees. Amen, dear goddess, hear that prayer of the people. Um, so then Antony and Cleopatra comes in, um, enter Cleopatra, and Enobarbus thinks that it's Antony. Hush, here comes Antony, Charmian, not he, the queen. Um, why that little bit of confusion there? It's a question you should ask yourself. That is, um, Shakespeare does nothing for no reason. Um, his reasons may often be bad ones. What Dr. Johnson said of him, and it's relevant to quote this now, was that Shakespeare was great, except he could never resist a pun. Um, the word pun then, um, for the, the 18th century word for pun was quibble. Um, when you talk about quibbling on the meaning of something, um, that actually means looking for a meaning um, that's not the obvious and central and surface meaning. Um, so what Dr. Johnson said of Shakespeare was, a quibble was for him the fatal Cleopatra for whom he would kiss away kingdoms and be content to lose them. That is, that, um, that if Shakespeare saw the possibility of a pun, he was totally willing to give up wherever, whatever good place that scene was going to in order to get the pun in. Um, notice that that's what Bolingbroke complains about in Richard, um, that he's always punning. Um, it's also what Richard has complained about in Gaunt. And now Johnson complains about it in Shakespeare. Um, so it doesn't mean that Shakespeare's reasons are always good reasons, but he always has a reason. So hush, here comes Antony. Not he, the queen. Um, why does Ina Barbas confuse Cleopatra with Antony? Um, I'll leave that an open question. If you need a paper topic, you got one. Um, saw you, my lord, says Cleopatra. No, lady. Was he not here? No, madam. And then Cleopatra, he was disposed to mirth. But on the sudden, a Roman thought hath struck him. Enobarbus. So there he was. He was in a good mood, and suddenly he thought of Rome. And now she's pissed off. He's gone away. He's not talking to her. She's pissed off. Um, Enobarbus, madam, seek him and bring him hither. Where's Alexis? Here at your service. My lord approaches. And there's Antony. Great. She wanted Antony. Enter Antony with a messenger, um, and Cleopatra's response, we will not look upon him, go with us. So she goes out sulking, and then we get the messenger giving us, finally giving us important information from Rome. Fulvia, thy wife, first came into the field. Why thy wife there? It's worth um, thinking about why the messenger doesn't just say Fulvia first came into the field. Um, there are many possible levels that you can answer this question on. But 
someone, give an answer. Why Fulvia thy wife? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, very good. So this, what I thought someone was going to say, which is the simplest thing, is that this is a little bit of awkwardness, like um, a phone call on stage where someone says, hello, oh, is it you, Marty? And did you bring the soda that I asked you to bring? Oh, they were out of the soda. Oh, they said they'd have more tomorrow. That is where you get the other side of a conversation. You get the information that isn't present through the speech of someone talking. So the audience is watching this play, and if, he, if the messenger simply says, Fulvia came first into the field, if you're in the audience, you're saying, Fulvia, who's that? So what does Shakespeare do? He solves this in the um, down and dirty way of saying, Fulvia, thy wife, remember, um, first came into the field. Um, but that's not right. Um, that is, if Shakespeare wanted us to know who Fulvia was before now, he could easily have told us. But notice that um, um, uh, sorry, I just want to find out where the messenger does this. Um, yeah, at line 107, another messenger comes in with a letter, and what that messenger says is, Fulvia, thy wife is dead. And the fact that Shakespeare repeats those, that formulation twice, Fulvia, thy wife, means that it's not just a little bit of information quickly slipped in in the midst of a speech. It's that somehow Fulvia, thy wife, is an important phrase in the commerce that Antony is undertaking now. And I think you're right that one, one way to understand that is the messenger is saying, um, not just Fulvia, but you screwed up. You let your wife go into the field alone while here you were in Alexandria. Fulvia, thy wife, came first into the field. Um, against my brother Lucius, says Antony. Um, yeah, and then they made war against each other, but then they turned against Caesar. Um, Antony then says at line 83, well, what worst? What else? And then the messenger says, the nature of bad news infects the teller. Now, Fulvia, thy wife, sounds like the messenger rebuking Antony, that's one hypothesis. But then the messenger says, I don't actually want to tell you the bad news that I have for you. Um, so he's a little bit frightened of Antony. Um, Antony responds, when it concerns the fool or coward. If, it's, if you're giving bad news to a fool or coward, yes, when it concerns the fool or coward, on, things that are past are done. With me tis thus, who tells me true, though in his tale lie death. I hear him as he flattered. We'll stop there, but just notice that Antony is saying to the messenger something that Cleopatra is going to be the exact opposite about when messengers come to her, which is all I want is the truth, and I will hear truth as flattery if you tell me the truth. Okay, section Friday, and um, we'll continue lectures on Antony and Cleopatra next week.